Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Li Pingchen, your host for today's show. Today, we will be talking to Dr. Angelina Qing about her new book, Unsettling Exiles, Chinese Migrants in Hong Kong and the Southern Periphery During the Cold War. This book is published by Columbia University Press in 2023. The conventional story of Hong Kong celebrates the people who fled the mainland in the wake of the establishment of the People's Republic of China in 1949. In this telling, migrants thrived under British colonial rule, transforming Hong Kong into a cosmopolitan city and an industrial and financial hub. Unsettling Exiles recasts identity formation in Hong Kong, demonstrating that the complexity of crossing borders shaped the city's uneasy place in the Sinophone world. Angelina Ching foregrounds the experiences of the many people who pass through Hong Kong without settling down or finding a sense of belonging, including refugees, deportees, undesirable residents, and members of sea communities. She emphasizes that flows of people did not stop at Hong Kong's borders, but also fled into neighboring territories, such as Taiwan and Macau. Qing develops the concept of the southern periphery, the region along the southern frontier of the PRC, outside its administrative control, yet closely tied to its political space. Both the PRC and governments in the southern periphery implemented strict migration and deportation policies in pursuit of border control with profound consequences for people in transit. Qing argues that Hong Kong identity emerged from the collective trauma of exile and dislocation as well as a sense of being on the margins of both the communist and nationalist Chinese regimes during the Cold War. Drawing on wide-ranging research, Unsettling Exiles sheds new lights on Hong Kong's ambivalent relationship to the mainland, its role in the global Cold War, and the origins of today's political currents. So that's a brief introduction about the book, and now let's hear it from the author. Welcome to the show, Angelina. Thanks for having me, Liping. All right, so uh, before we talk about the show, we want to uh, get to know you a little bit. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, maybe your research interest, and anything you would like us to know? Sure. Um... My name is Angelina Chin, and I am Associate Professor of History at Pomona College. And uh, my research interests revolves around the themes of colonialism, political movements, diaspora, feminism, sexuality, and recently, uh, disability in modern East Asia. And uh, my research focuses on the social histories of marginal people, identities and citizenship as well as transregional networks in Hong Kong, Taiwan, and China. Um, My first book, um, Bound to Emancipate Working Women and Urban Citizenship in Early 20th Century China and Hong Kong, 
published in 2012, explores the concept of women's emancipation in early 20th century South China and how lower class women were both liberated and constrained by the social and political discourses on what women should become. My second monograph, the one that we'll be talking about today, um, which is entitled Unsettling Exiles, Chinese Migrants in Hong Kong and the Southern Periphery During the Cold War, just published a few months ago, um, argues that Hong Kong identity emerged from the collective trauma of exile and dislocation, as well as a sense of being on the margins of both the communist and nationalist Chinese regimes during the Cold War. So, um, so I just finished these two books, and um, and uh, right now I am uh, the chair of the history department at Pomona College, and uh, so I am uh, teaching classes on um, Taiwan and Hong Kong history, um, as well as uh, history of modern East Asia and uh, polit- political movements in East Asia. All right, thank you, Angelina. And uh, so we want to know a little bit about how you started this book project about Hong Kong, especially the identity formation and also to some degree transformation as well. Um, well, I have always been interested in um, social history of marginalized individuals in Chinese societies. So uh, my goals of writing history has always been to unearth the stories of ordinary people and delve into how they navigated the shifting political and social landscapes of their times. My, while my first book, uh, Bound to Emancipate, focused on the lives of lower-class women employed in the surface and domestic labor sectors in Hong Kong and Guangdong during the 1920s and 1930s, Uh, This current work, uh, Unsettling Exiles, continued this type of exploration, this time concentrating on exiled individuals who departed mainland China following the events of 1949. And I want to say that um, one recurring theme in both of my books is the concept of imagined communities. So Hong Kong features quite prominently in both of my books. Uh, In my first book, I explored the close uh, integration of colonial Hong Kong within South China region during the 1920s and 1930s prior to the communist takeover. And in my second book, uh, Unsettling Exiles, I delve into how this same border underwent a dramatic transformation following the communist takeover in 1949. So Hong Kong evolved into an exit point to the free world during the Cold War era. So in both of these books, I um, talk about imagined communities, but they're quite different. In my first book, it centered around the homeland of China and, um, and, and also how, how uh, China is connected to Hong Kong. And then in the second one, I talk about um, an imaginary um, homeland that they they are thinking about, and also how um, they were at the same time uh, trying to find home uh, in their temporary abode, whether it be Hong Kong, Taiwan, Macau, or the virtual community among diasporic Chinese. And um, I also want to say that I am uh, deeply interested in adopting um, alternative perspectives to understand Chinese history. 
So in many traditional uh, narratives of post-1949 Chinese history, um, we tend to focus on uh, significant events in mainland China, such as the land reform of the 1940s and early 1950s, uh, the Great Leap Forward in the 1950s, and the Cultural Revolution in the 1960s and 1970s, uh, along with the effects on the people residing in various regions um, in the People's Republic of China. Uh, however, my own upbringing in Hong Kong led me to ponder the experiences of those who departed mainland China and how that time within the PRC shaped their identities and political outlooks after their departure. So I think this is particularly pertinent for individuals in Hong Kong and other regions who, who, who have left China but still maintain uh, connections um, with the PRC as they were influenced by the political and environmental changes in the mainland even after their leaving. Um, at the same time, I've observed that um, Hong Kong seems to be uh, always treated as a peripheral subject within the field of China studies. Um, this may be attributed in part, I think, to its unique status as a former colonial city. So um, during my stay in, um, in Taiwan, I stayed in Taiwan for about a year in uh, 2012, um, doing, uh, when I began to do research for this project, I started to notice uh, striking parallels between Hong Kong and Taiwan. Both regions share a colonial history and have grappled with the growing influence of the PRC. So while in Taiwan, I actively sought ways to bridge this gap between these two regions and facilitate a better understanding of Hong Kong among the Taiwanese population. And, um, and in terms of how I get into this project in particular, so when I was in Taiwan, um, I was trying to find mat research materials for a new project and I knew that I was interested in um, the connections of, uh, between Taiwan and Hong Kong. So during this period, um, I stumbled upon the archival materials uh, of the Kuomintang government um, in, 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 in Taipei, as well as the, um, uh, some of the uh, Kuomintang archives um, in, in both the Taipei City and Academia Sinica. And both of these archives contained a wealth of information on border crossings. So I, I discerned intriguing connections within these materials. And, uh, and, and that's when I began to think more about um, how I can find uh, materials that can talk about the complex relationships between states and nations, as well as the border crossings uh, activities of individuals. So um, another type of materials that I found um, uh, in the library of Academia Sinica uh, are the publications by, um, the, uh, uh, by the Third Force, um, a group of individuals who uh, were um, 
who who were uh, both against the CCP and the Kuomintang, and and they were very active in the 1950s and 1960s um, uh, in, in Hong Kong and publishing the ideas about uh, how they think of the homeland of China. So so that's how I got into um, uh, this project in particular, and and uh, as it, it evolved, uh, I began to look at um, other kinds of um, incidents of border crossings. Um, as well as um, uh, cultural repre- representations of um, of diaspora. All right, thank you, Ajanila, for uh, sharing with us this uh, start of this uh, journey to write the book. And especially, you mentioned this kind of KMT archive and also the different materials at Academic Seneca, especially about the state and the border control, but also individuals border crossing as well. And uh, with uh, Taiwan, and also you mentioned about Hong Kong as well. So I was wondering, can you just give us a brief uh, accounts of the history of Hong Kong? I know this is very hard, um, but just uh, some introduction about the historical background of Hong Kong so that uh, we can better understand uh, the case studies that we will be discussed uh, later. Um, sure. Um, so as... I think, um, as you may know, uh, Hong Kong uh, officially became a British colony um, in nineteen uh, in eighteen ninety eight uh, as part of the Treaty of Nanking. Well, there are several treaties which, like at first, only uh, ceded um, part of Hong Kong. Like, um, at first, the Hong Kong Island, and then um, um, and, and and then um, and then the, and then the new territories, um, uh, but. Uh, uh, it's um, uh, after 18, uh, 1898, um, it, it is said that the lease was um, um, uh, for uh, 99 uh, years. So, uh, but uh, prior to the 1980s, the fate of Hong Kong was uncertain um, with debates on uh, whether it should be eventually returned to China, but it is not sure which China it should be returned to. And there is some discussion about whether it should remain under British control indefinitely. Um, or sometimes there were um, uh, some um, uh, like a minority discussion about like Hong Kong um, um, perhaps should be become uh, independent um, like other former colonies. Um, but the 1984 Sino-British Joint Declaration ultimately um, sealed the decision to transfer Hong Kong um, to Chinese sovereignty in 1997. And at that time, uh, because the uh, uh, the PRC was the uh, the, the ruling regime um, in China, and so so it is that to Hong Kong will be returned to the PRC in 1997. I also want to say that the Cold War um, era brought uh, 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 controversy regarding uh, which China, Hong Kong, should be handed back to. Um, until uh, World War II, uh, people could move in and out of Hong Kong relatively freely. Um, however, following the communist takeover in 1949, um, many sought refuge in Hong Kong um, uh, 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 to escape from 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 communism, uh, decided to um, uh, uh, decided to stay in Hong Kong. 
So, um, so, so that became a um, uh, population crisis in Hong Kong. So in 1950, the border was sealed uh, by the Hong Kong government, and uh, the government also established a quota system for legal migration. And it is this particular period that I am examining, um, focusing on the uh, experiences of those who crossed the border into Hong Kong. I also uh, want to say that um, I think Hong Kong holds a very significant place in global history. So by um, uh, looking at Hong Kong's uh, within the context of uh, the Cold War, I think we can discern its strategic importance to both the communist bloc and the free world. Um, and I think uh, uh, and uh, we should look at the Cold War, not just in terms of international relations, but also delve into uh, the social re- repercussions, including how it displaced individuals and altered uh, the individuals' lives. So, um, so, so uh, in this regard, I think like uh, uh, my book is about uh, you know it's about Hong Kong history, but it's also about. Um, uh, uh, a global history of migration and refugees and 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 a history of uh, the Cold War. Yes, and especially as you mentioned uh, in Cold War and also the different political context of Hong Kong from the late 19th century and mm-hmm. later on become a British colony and eventually after the uh, PRC takeover and uh, 1950s, the Cold War and how this geopolitical uh uh, context actually, as you mentioned, and also so brilliantly analyzed in this book, how does that have impact on individual and also especially on their um, course of action and also how they exactly cross border and then the direction of their border crossing as well. So uh, with that, now we know the a little bit about context about Hong Kong, and uh, I want to uh, tackle this uh, another keywords in your book title that is a southern periphery. So can you tell us a little bit about the southern periphery and what role does Hong Kong play in the southern periphery, especially in the Cold War period? Sure. Um, I use the southern periphery to refer to the southern frontier extended uh, beyond the Shenzhen-Hong Kong border. Um, and I used this term, uh, the southern periphery, uh, to talk about a vast territory uh, at the southern frontier of the uh, People's Republic of China beyond its uh, administrative uh, border. So, um in other words, um, it's it is not uh, confined uh, by national borders or regional borders. So uh, people always ask me if it is uh, if your if your book is about like Hong Kong or about Hong Kong and Taiwan and Macau. But uh, um, uh, it it's um, you can say that it it, it uh, talks about these regions, but it is not um, really about like each uh, region um, as as, uh, as 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 single units, but it encompasses. Um, I would say, and it encompasses everything south of the Shenzhen Hong Kong border and beyond. So it's a conceptual space that border crosses envisioned uh, after their border crossing. So they did not really perceive uh, Hong Kong as their final destinations. 
but rather as a stepping stone on their journey with, with prospects of further migration to Taiwan or um, to the U.S. or elsewhere. So um, as I embarked on my uh, research into exiled Chinese from mainland China, I discovered that for many migrants, um, Hong Kong and to some extent Macau as well, uh, were not their preferred destinations, despite uh, often being their initial landing points. Their immediate aspiration was to cross the border into what they imagined as a free world on the other side. Um, But their experiences after crossing the border often did not quite align with their expectations of freedom and ease. So many of these migrants um, continue to be marginalized by various governing regimes, including the Hong Kong government or the Kuomintang government, or even the U.S. government. So, um, so I believe the term um, "southern periphery" uh, uh, aptly encapsulates the expansive territories beyond China's border um, and the marginalized experiences of these migrants after crossing the border. All right. And um, so, uh, with that, especially you mentioned Hong Kong as a trend transitory points for their next step. And uh, so what their experience in Hong Kong, especially in your first chapter, you talk about refugees and then the different governments and organizations actually have a different approach to uh, deal with the issue of and also presence of refugees as well. So uh, can you tell us um, especially about the uh, Kuomintang and the Hong Kong government and other international organizations, how do they deal with the refugees who escape to Hong Kong? Um, yeah, I can talk. Uh, uh, I can give a few examples of um, how the different regimes um, uh, treated the refugees after they escaped to Hong Kong. So I think each of these groups or governments had their own interests uh, and worries as well as priorities. Um, the Kuomintang, for example, was primarily focused on its efforts to regain control of mainland China uh, from the communist government. So uh, because of this intention, they were reluctant to allow individuals who might be potential spies um, or who might place a burden on their resources to um, uh, to to retake China. So so they were very um, careful and selective about who should be allowed into um, into Taiwan. So if if they had uh, um, suspicious backgrounds, like for example, they had lived in mainland for a long time, or their um, uh, their their uh, political uh, loyalty to the. Guomindang is questionable, um, then they were not allowed uh, to enter Taiwan. And um, and they also did not want um, um, uh, people who were uh, disabled or who, who might not be able to contribute uh, to uh, Taiwan society. So, so uh, a lot of the um, uh, disabled population were actually... Um, uh, stranded in Hong Kong uh, as a result of that. 
And um, so I think that uh, shows um, the hypocrisy of the Guomindang government, uh, because uh, on the one hand, they, they, uh, they, they talk about the brutality of the CCP regime and um, how they... Um, uh, how 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 they were so brutal that many people had to escape uh, uh, from from the PRC regime. Uh, but on the other hand, they were not really um, helping uh, many of these individuals, especially the ones who needed help the most. So um, and 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 they were also criticizing the Hong Kong government for not doing enough for these migrants. Um, as for the Hong Kong government, um, um, they also felt that uh, the, uh, the lower class migrants um, were a kind of burden to the city. And, and they always, uh, at the beginning, um, uh, till about mid-1950s, they, they, they wanted them to go back eventually. So um, and and they uh, there is this uh, hesitation in using the term uh, refugees uh, because uh, it indicated that these people would be here to stay. So um, um, and and they also did not want to uh, offend um, the, uh, the 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 PRC by calling them refugees uh, because like. Uh, um, uh, they wanted to maintain a good relationship with the PLC. So they, they had to um, uh, neutralize the political affiliations of the refugees um, who stayed in Hong Kong. And, um, and, and the U.S. Uh, faced a different challenge. So um, uh, they, uh, if they um, uh, allow uh, many of these uh, migrants uh, to come to the U.S., then um, uh, uh, many uh, U.S. citizens uh, felt that um, that would uh, uh, be a burden to the economy. Um, and, um, and at that time, uh, there was uh, a, a great deal of discrimination against, uh, uh, against uh, Asian migrants. So, um, so, so the, the, the U.S. Um, was very strict on uh, what type of people um, could enter uh, the U.S. Um, and, uh, and, and they had uh, their own uh, immigration policies and concerns. And, um, and, and it's many of those uh, concerns kind of uh, echo uh, today's immigration uh, issues as well. So um, uh, the U.S. ended up uh, um, accepting uh, skilled migrants or professionals, and, um, and uh, they uh, were reluctant to accept refugees um, who did not uh, 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 speak English or who had low uh, education. And uh, another um, requirement that uh, uh, the U.S. had was that they had to um, uh, state that they were, that the, the refugees had to state their um, anti-communist stance. So, um, um, and uh, uh, for these reasons, um, uh, a lot of the refugees found themselves uh, stranded in Hong Kong and were not um able to uh, migrate to um, Taiwan or the U.S. or other countries as they had desired. Right. What um, a, a challenging situation. So they first uh, escaped to Hong Kong and thinking about this might be a trend. 
um, transitory points for their next step to either Taiwan or U.S. or other places. But as you mentioned, they actually encounter a lot of different restrictions about their migration for the next step. And among these uh, refugees, there's actually one group of people that uh, is actually your topic for chapter two, that is the third force. And uh, so can you tell us a little bit about the third force, the um, individuals involved there, and also what role did Hong Kong play in its operation and also mobilization? Um, yeah, uh, thanks for asking about that. Um, so uh, um, uh, there are two um, aspects that I am examining about the third force, um, and uh, they are, I think, pretty distinctive groups of people. Um, the first group uh, that I am examining uh, are the leaders of the third force. So they are the um, editors of the third force and the main contributors of the third force magazines. And um, uh, there have been uh, uh, other books um, uh, written about the third force, but um, most of the uh, uh, books and articles about the third force focus on the um, kind of military aspect and also the um, connections um, the third force uh, leaders had with um, the U.S., for example. So, uh, but I'm um, looking at uh, the, um, uh, the 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 magazines that were uh, published um, um, in Hong Kong. So, uh, so, so the, the 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 group of leaders who were the main um, uh, organizers of these magazines and who were the um, who were the editors. Um, some of them uh, uh, moved in and out of Hong Kong. And they were, I think, uh, not strictly refugees because uh, many of them went to Hong Kong before uh, the close of the border in 1950. So, so I think they were um, actually um, not from the lower class and, and they were um, from like a middle class background and they had a pretty high education. Um, and um, another aspect or group of people that I'm looking at in this so-called third force movement are the readers of these third force magazines. So, so these readers, they uh, sometimes would write uh, uh, letters to these uh, third force pub uh, publications and their letters would be published. And sometimes um, they would contribute articles uh, um, to these third force uh, magazines, but they often use pen names, so so their identities were um, unknown. So um, uh, I, I I find uh, these third force magazines very interesting um, because uh, these magazines kind of served uh, as a kind of virtual space um, akin to the internet we have today. So they used the magazines to discuss their ideas. And in the early days, they saw uh, Hong Kong as an important hub, especially during um, uh, the 1950s. So um, they had limited uh, resources, but uh, relied on Hong Kong's um, uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the, like the, the space where it provided um, uh, a, a space for them to interact and, and discuss politics. 
and um, it, and and Hong Kong was also a space where they can form these uh, global connections and uh, host uh, meetings and publish magazines um, uh, in that space. And um, um, for the um, for the third force leaders, uh, most of them were. Um, uh, disenchanted with both the Chinese Communist Party and the Kuomintang. And, and, and they saw Hong Kong as a sanctuary where they could organize dissenting political activities and share their visions for a better China. So the essays penned by these leaders of the Third Force um, uh, demonstrate that Hong Kong uh, can serve as an international center for producing uh, cultural and political critiques of China. And these critiques uh, found in the magazines um, also um, uh, reveal how sometimes these individuals were sort of in, 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 uh, in, in the limbo in Hong Kong. And they used uh, uh, Hong Kong to uh, imagine a, a future democratic China. And, and as for the um, uh, lower class people who read the magazine and, and contributed to, to, to these magazines, they were um, sometimes they were um, in the refugee camp um, in uh, Rene's Mill. And, um, and, and sometimes they uh, were living um, in uh, squatter uh, huts in um, in like the, down the Line Rock mount, Mountain, so 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 they were uh, very poor migrants, um, uh, at least uh, some of them uh, from, from their writings. So um, uh, so so they were able to form a sense of imagined communities uh, through the Third Force magazines, and um, and from there, um, uh, uh, they were thinking about like sometimes a, a more democratic China in the future. But I think um, uh, what is more pertinent to them is that there's a space where they can talk about um, uh, the, 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 the sense of uh, uh, strandedness and loneliness being in Hong Kong. And, and that eventually um, uh, uh, gave them a sense of uh, community and, and, and identity um, in the city. So, so I find, um, uh, I find uh, the, uh, the, the, this discursive um, effects of these third, third force magazines and the writings in these magazines uh, very interesting. And, um, and, and so, so I think uh, uh, the, the, the third force magazines have um, the effects of um, creating this bigger sense of imagined community of a future um, uh, uh, homeland uh, China, as well as a local uh, community of Hong Kong. Right, especially you mentioned the third force, the magazine itself is this virtual space for the uh, the leaders, but also for contributors and also for the readers to express their voice. It could be their political imagination of democratic China, or it could be a way to form global connection. But also, as you mentioned, it's also a uh, 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 outlet or way of connect other people to talk about their lived reality in Hong Kong, the struggle in order to form and uh, uh, solidify a sense of community, a local community in Hong Kong, actually. 
So uh, with the third force, now um, I want to transition to uh, uh, another group of border crossing individuals that in this time it will be in terms of the territorial waters as well. So in this, it's about how the KMT um, represent and report these different cases. So can you tell us especially about how the KMT affiliated print media report these border crossing activities in Hong Kong territorial waters in the 60s? And in these reports, how they uh, talk about or how they represent communist China? Um, yeah, of course. So, um, so um, uh, during the Cultural Revolution, um, like uh, uh, I think people in Hong Kong, especially the the uh, people in the fishing industry, lived in constant fear. Um, they were uh, uh, like. Uh, very, they, they encountered like dead bodies um, in the waters, and then they were also cases of like kidnapping um, along the western shores of Hong Kong. So, um, um, so, 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 uh, and uh, their direct encounters, as well as uh, some of the uh, newspaper reports uh, at that time, um, made uh, um, a lot of Hong Kong. The, a lot of Hong Kong residents, and, and especially those who are um, uh, the, the living along the sea coast and, and the fishing um, industry, um, it, these uh, stories and that encounters made them imagine the worst about what the uh, Chinese Communist Party uh, was doing across the border. So um, uh, I want to um, maybe read uh, an example um, from a newspaper, just to give you a sense of um, what kind of uh, stories are reported uh, in Hong Kong at that time. So, um, um, so, so this is a newspaper report from uh, June twenty seven, um, nineteen sixty eight. Um, um, and it is uh, published in um, in, in uh, uh, one of the pro uh, Guomindang uh, newspapers, and the title of the of this article is called uh, uh, "Dead Bodies Rolling in from from the mainland from the mainland," and uh, the the story uh, describes the condition of the the corpses discovered in the sea or along the coastline. So um, I'll, I'll start reading um, the description. Uh, so, quote, 90% of corpses discovered on the sea are incomplete and unrecognizable. They have no names on them, and nobody knows who their parents, siblings, and other relatives are. The only truth we know about them is that most of these victims are youths. They are tied up with ropes, and some are even blindfolded. This is evidence that they were killed and discarded in the sea. As to their clothes, they are some in communist military uniforms and some in liberation outfits, and others just look like regular civilians. This indicates that they died during the factional struggle, and the culprits behind all these murders is the great greatest evil Mao Zedong, unquote. So uh, we see like stories like this one um, in newspapers every day. Um, um, 
for uh, like the whole summer uh, in the in, in 1968. So and uh, it and 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 it's not just um, uh, that. Particular year, and and that particular year was uh, especially severe because um, uh, uh, there there were uh, factional struggles um, during the Cultural Revolution um, in Guangdong area, and um, these uh, some some of the uh, uh, participants of the factional struggles were killed, and they were uh, thrown into um, the the uh, Zhujiang River, and and the dead bodies uh, floated into the sea coast of Hong Kong and Macau. So, so, so that's why in 1968 there were so many dead bodies uh, along the sea coast of Hong Kong, and the, the fishermen encountered them every day. But um, uh, uh, throughout the 1950s to about um, early 1980s, um, there were uh, uh, reports of uh, dead bodies like um, along the coast or in, in the sea territories of, of Hong Kong, um, like uh, quite, quite, uh, quite regularly. So, um, so, so these stories um, uh, painted sometimes like painted the CCP as a ruthless uh, and, and, and uh, brutal force. Um, and, um, and, and, and there were uh, also stories about um, fishermen and oystermen being kidnapped by, uh, by CCP agents um, from uh, Hong Kong sea territories uh, back to Shenzhen. And, and these uh, people sometimes were killed and then sometimes they were um, forced to surrender their um, their their catches and um, and and their belongings uh, um, to these uh, self-claimed CCP agents. So um, uh, although like these uh, stories about um, CCP, like we cannot really verify uh, what happened to these individuals in uh, China. Um, uh, because like uh, much of it is kind of hearsay, and 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 we only discovered the dead bodies in in Hong Kong. But there are a lot of um, speculations of what has been happening in China and and how scary it is to live in China. So these uh, horrifying uh, stories left a lasting impact on the Hong Kong population, and 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 I argue that um, uh, these stories uh, traumatized. Uh, the 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 uh, residents in Hong Kong um, with memories of uh, some of their own escape and also their concerns for their families who are still in mainland China and and it is part of uh, these um, um, uh, horrifying stories that uh, shaped the way they. Um, they, 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 they felt about uh, 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 their identities as well as their relationships um, with the PRC regime. Yeah, that is uh, very horrible <laughs> as you uh, uh, read the uh, newspaper reports and especially this uh, representation of this uh, uh, CCP regime as ruthless and brutal and also that um, this uh, bodies, they were uh, killed and discarded and just kind of flowing on this uh, water territory that will be encountering by fishermen or just by individual along the shore or so. 
So uh, this uh, traumatic uh, uh, experience of this uh, sea uh, territory, and especially this uh, dead body, but also the report of the dead body as well. So uh, with this, and uh, there's another group that is also in the border crossing as well, but uh, they were considered as the undesirables, or I should say, quote-unquote, the undesirables by the CCP and the KMT. So um, can you tell us a little bit more about who are these people they were considered as, quote-unquote, undesirable? And uh, how did the CCP and KMT regime use Hong Kong to screen and filter these people and uh, because they were considered not qualified for citizenship? Uh, yeah, so I think uh, in terms of undesirables, I, I think um, um, I um, use uh, two types of policies to talk about undesirables. Uh, one type of policies is um, the uh, the refugee and immigration policies. So as I mentioned uh, earlier about um, how the Guamindang government um, did not want uh, disabled individuals or, uh, um, or, or, or individuals who had uh, um, uh, suspicious backgrounds or who, who, who may be spies to enter Taiwan. So, so that's, uh, I think, one way of um, like uh, banning um, so-called undesirables from, from entering Taiwan. And uh, another type of policies that I focus on, which is um, in um, uh, chapter four of my book, is about um, deportation, uh, deportation policies. So, so, um, so um, I think uh, uh, my book is not, uh, I mean, it is, of course, uh, about um, how people escaped from mainland China. So, but I also want to say that, like, uh, after they escaped from mainland China, um, their lives were not that much better after that. So, so, uh, so, so I am on the one hand, like, talking about what the factors that made them uh, leave mainland China. Uh, but on the other hand, I'm also talking about how uh, the regimes in 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 Hong Kong and Taiwan and 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 in PRC as well, if they decided to go back, uh, were not welcoming to them. So 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 I so I want to um, kind of talk about uh, how these different regimes um, uh, uh, were um, uh, were not uh, uh, treating um, these uh, Chinese people. Uh, as uh, their own citizens, so um, the um, the first case that I want to talk about um, is 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 about this tension uh, between the Hong Kong government and the um, and 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 the PRC government. So um, it involves the deportation of two actors. Um, they're a couple um, uh, called Fu uh, Qi uh, and and Shi uh, Hui and and and. In Cantonese, Fu uh, K um, um, and Sat White. So, um, so they were uh, scheduled to deport to be deported uh, from Hong Kong back to mainland China because uh, they were activists um, d- 
during the 1967 riots. And they were uh, very famous uh, actors uh, in Hong Kong. So, so um, uh, and, and, and um, if you search on the internet, like, uh, if you search for um, uh, Fu Qi and Shi Hui, and then you will find uh, a photo of uh, Shi Hui holding the red, uh, little red book um, in front of the, um, the, 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 uh, the house of the governor in Hong Kong in 1967. So, uh, so, so uh, at that time, um, the Hong Kong government sent um, these uh, rioters um, uh, in 1967 riots uh, into the uh, Victoria detention camp. So, so uh, they 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 would he- they would uh, hold um, hearings of these individuals, and um, and so the Hong Kong government decided to. Um, uh, send them back to um, uh, mainland China. Um, they did not call it as deportation. They called it as a release of, of like prisoners or of criminals, like back to China. Um, so, so, so in in the Hong Kong government's records, it is written as a form of goodwill. So, um, uh, but because they are very famous actors, so when they were crossing when they were about to cross the border uh, uh, into Shenzhen, like at the, uh, between um, like Hong Kong and Shenzhen. Um, uh, interestingly, they were denied entry back into mainland China at the border. So, so that uh, became a very sensational news because they were actors and then uh, they had a hard time entering, um, entering China. So they, they could not, somehow could not uh, get in. So they were, um, they were uh, stranded um, uh, like in Law Wu, uh, like um, for a few days. So um, uh, it is uh, re- uh, reported in the newspaper that uh, the CCP wanted to keep them in Hong Kong as a means to continue their propaganda efforts um, um, and and uh, and uh, uh, but uh, for um, uh, it is unclear why they were actually uh, not allowed to enter China. Um, there were some speculations, uh, including um, uh, fears of potential corruption by capitalism and concerns that they might uh, influence Chinese citizens negatively because um, uh, they they had many like uh, luxury. Uh, brand uh, items on them so so they would corrupt the Chinese citizens um, and um, and uh, and and uh, and the CCP uh, remained uh, insistent that uh, the, the the couple had the right to reside in Hong Kong so um, um, and other um, uh, uh, other other reasons, other speculative reasons why uh, they were not allowed to enter mainland China is that uh, it would make the CCP uh, appear weak and incapable of standing up uh, to the British colonial authorities in Hong Kong, and um, um, and and uh, and uh, in any case, like so, they were. Um, um, they they were not allowed entry, even though they were um, uh, they were communist members. So so they ended up um, 
uh, being released uh, from the detention center and then kind of uh, just uh, living as uh, uh, normal Hong Kong residents uh, after that. And then another case that I find uh, interesting, which I also talk about in uh, chapter four, uh, pertains to the 10 um, uh, POWs uh, who were released by the mainland government in 1975. Um, and uh, they, uh, they, they wanted to uh, reunite with their uh, families in Taiwan uh, via Hong Kong. So, um, uh, so, so they, they already left mainland China and they were in Hong Kong uh, waiting to uh, 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 enter Taiwan. And unfortunately, they were denied entry into Taiwan, and um, and and they found themselves uh, um, uh, stranded in Hong Kong, and and they were uh, undesirable um, to the uh, Taiwan government, to the Kuomintang government, because uh, they spent. Uh, too much time in China. So the uh, Kuomintang government worried that uh, they could have been spies or they could have been sent by the PRC to um, learn more about like what's going on in Taiwan. So, so, uh, so, so, but uh, they were POWs. So, um, um, so for uh, former Kuomintang uh uh, offices who were once uh, POWs on the mainland, um, they uh, they they if they wanted to enter Taiwan, they had to um, um, apply as refugees. So so they had to accept this label of refugees um, if they had uh, any hope of uh, returning. Um, to Taiwan, but um, these two POWs uh, felt that they were national heroes who had sacrificed for the Kuomintang, and and they were just like returning home as as um, as like soldiers who had fought for the Kuomintang. Um, so so uh, so so most of them refused to uh, apply as refugees because they did not think that they were refugees, and of course like. Um, being treated as spies um, really um, uh, uh, made them feel very uh, uh, disappointed and and some sometimes uh, disillusioned. And and one of these one of the ten um, POWs even committed suicide while he was uh, stranded in Hong Kong. So um, so so I think these two examples show that like. Um, uh, uh, these uh, individuals, they felt very loyal um, to the state uh, that um, uh, they, uh, they felt strongly about, but, um, but uh, their state did not want them. So, so Hong Kong became a dumping ground uh, for uh, both the CCP and the Kuomintang. All right. And especially you mentioned that for the border crossing or the um, the two examples that you mentioned, especially the uh, CCP and KMT, they have the considerations, the political considerations, whether they will accept or allow these uh, individuals. And also, as you an- analyze, there are this a layer of suspicion and also mistrust on these individuals. And uh, so with this, in the political landscape and also this very 
uh, different uh, discourse as well. The meaning of homes and nation and also in uh, belongings. Uh, here we see that is uh, in different forms with the different elements, especially with these individuals uh, stranded or floating or in transit in uh, uh, Hong Kong as well. So now I would like to move on to uh, another chap next chapter, and especially you uh, uh, analyze another three different cases who left China in 1962, and specifically about their um, political affiliation and consciousness of these migrants and how the, uh, the different meanings of home, nations, and belongings that they have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, I uh, so in in uh, the chapter after that, I talk about um, the experiences and political affiliations of uh, uh, three escapees uh, who left mainland China in 1962. So uh, I picked them because uh, of their common experience of um, growing up during the um, land reform um, in mainland China in the early 1950s and uh, and and also um, uh, uh, and 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 their their families were uh, badly affected uh, uh, by the by the um, uh, land land reform and the subsequent uh, uh, political turmoil in mainland China and, and and all three of them lived in um, uh, Guangdong. And, um, and, uh, and, and, and the names are uh, uh, Yip Cheng, uh, Lao Zhengwu, and, and Xiao Yujing. And I think uh, they, um, they, their cases offer a fascinating uh, study in how um, different routes and circumstances can change the political, uh, the, the political consciousness of migrants with um, anti-communist sentiments. So um, uh, I want to first talk about um, Yip Cheng, who, um, who uh, 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 went to Hong Kong in 1962. And um, because he had um, um, uh, relatives in Hong Kong, so he chose to remain in Hong Kong. And... Um, um, he, uh, his, his, uh, his, his family, um, uh, suffered quite a bit during the land reform because his father, um, uh, who had passed away before, I think before he was born or when he was very young, like, um, maybe when he was an infant, um, uh, uh, was part of the Guomindang, um, army so so but his his father had passed away but uh, because of this affiliation um uh the the ccp uh, persecuted like his family um during the land reform and uh and uh and 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 he uh he he uh could not have um adequate um uh, education when he was in mainland China. So he went to Hong Kong and, uh, and stayed there. And then, um, he went to, uh, night school and, and studied, uh, architecture. And, um, um, he was, um, not very politically active in Hong Kong. Um, I think partly because he was influenced by Hong Kong's neutral stance, um, uh, and, uh, and, and he did not, um, uh, 
really participate in in protests in Hong Kong. So so he was not a politically active individual, but um, he uh, did read uh, quite a bit of newspapers and publications, and many of them were published by uh, uh, by uh, like uh, uh, pro Guomindang publishers. And I think these uh, uh, these forms of media played a role in shaping his perspective. So even though he did not actively uh, involve in politics, he maintained a critical stance uh, toward the toward the uh, CCP, um, um, and uh, and that stance did not change after Deng Xiaoping's um, economic reforms, and. Um, and as there were more uh, political turmoils um, in the 2000s and, and 2010s, uh, and he his his thinking kind of aligned with the pro uh, pro democracy camp, and um, and and he 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 felt quite strongly that Hong Kong should uh, have as much autonomy as possible. And uh, on the other hand, uh, the other two. Um, the other two uh, SKPs, uh, uh, Xiao Yujing and Lao Zhengwu, they both uh, they both went to Taiwan, and um, and uh, they were um, groomed in a very uh, uh, deep rooted anti communist environment. So um, uh, they uh, when they when they left, um, when they left uh, China into uh, Hong Kong uh, for Xiao Yujing and 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 Macau for Lao Zhengwu, um, uh, they were not. I think they were not uh, 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 very um, pro Guomindang, and and they were just uh, uh, want uh, they they wanted to find um, a means to survive um, uh, because of their background. So. So, uh, so, but uh, they had a chance to uh, move to Taiwan, and then they did not stay in uh, Hong Kong or Macau for very long, just uh, for a, a few months. So, when they moved to Taiwan, um, uh, they uh, had um, uh, quite strong connections with the Guomindang, and um, and uh, and Xiao Yujing, for example, um, he met uh, uh, Jiang Jingguo, um, uh, the son of uh, 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 Chen Kai-shek, and and um, and uh, that uh, uh, encounter and and the subsequent relationship with with Jiang Jingguo um, played a significant role in his political development. And 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 it made him become a dedicated follower uh, of the Kuomintang, and uh, and he later on um, became uh, one of the far right activists um, who uh, who were uh, against uh, Taiwan independence. Um, and I think Lao Zhengwu were uh, quite similar um, in terms of the uh, in, in in terms of. His relationship with Guomindang, but he did not have that personal connection with Jiang Jingguo, um, and he um, he uh, displayed a more uh, pragmatic approach. So even though um, he had very strong anti-communist sentiments, um, uh, and he was also um, uh, one of the far right activists who were against um, Taiwan independence. Um, 
uh, I would argue that his um, uh, faith lies in uh, a united China, a unified China, um, at more than uh, an opposition to the CCP. And um, because he's quite a pragmatic person, and and he he um, he he was more adaptable to um, uh, to like uh, like like approaching the CCP once again after the economic reform. So so this uh, pragmatic view allowed him to uh, adapt to the changing circumstances. Uh, um, and uh, later on, after the economic reform, he uh, established a farm in in Guangdong, um, and uh, and and was able to uh, you know travel to Guangdong and and um, and 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 started some uh, cultural centers in Guangdong. So uh, um, so uh, so for the three of them, uh, Lao Zhengwu was uh, uh, least against. Uh, um, uh, reunification under CCP. So, so I think um, uh, the the routes of how these three individuals took, and also their experiences um, in Taiwan and Hong Kong, shaped their um, uh, later political views uh, about uh, China and about uh, Hong Kong and Taiwan. Right, especially as you mentioned the centrality of Hong Kong as a site and also the uh, different uh, border crossing routes that these individuals take to shape and maybe also to some degree reshape their political affiliation and also their political vision of China. So uh, with this, uh, we uh, heard uh, different case studies and also the uh, individual stories in your books. And uh, so how has the narrative around border crossing changed in the past few decades? And then how do we uh, understand uh, the political uh, currents of Hong Kong today, especially in relation to this diasporic history of the southern peripheries? Um, yeah, so I think the shift in the narrative around border crossing um, it um, happens like I think uh, maybe in the 2000s and um, um, and it is a reflection of evolving political and ideological context in China. So um, I think uh, before uh, um, the 2000s, I think the, the narrative about border crossing, um, centered on the portrayal of the individuals who crossed the border, like who who were escapees, um, as uh, uh, as 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 uh, uh, betraying the party's ideals. So so they were um, uh, depicted as uh, driven solely by a desire for a luxurious life, and they uh, and and their actions were framed as a betrayal of communist uh, principles. So um, I think this earlier narrative served the purpose of emphasizing the moral superiority of the CCP and uh, reinforcing its control over its uh, its, its citizens and also um, 
uh, and also uh, the uh, framing of Hong Kong as a place of moral corruption and a place that uh, uh, will um, will uh, um, make you um, uh, move away from um, from from a more um, uh, uh, from 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 uh, the the communist uh, ideals, um, but I think around um, a few years after the handover in 1997, um, the narrative um, underwent a, a, a significant transformation. So after that, I think the focus uh, shift shifted to um, the idea of a homecoming for Hong Kong and its people. So. Um, I would say this change in narrative was driven by political agendas and the desire to integrate Hong Kong into the broader Chinese narrative. So, so this narrative was not just um, uh, displayed in um, like mainland uh, um, like uh, media. So it's not just, of course, we see them in mainland. Um, cultural productions like dramas or movies, but interestingly, even in Hong Kong, like in um, um, in uh, like uh, the 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 main um, um, uh, television broadcast company uh, uh, TVB, uh, you see this kind of narrative um, uh, in some of their um, documentary programs. So, um, so the narrative basically is saying that, um, uh, like the the people who had um, uh, once uh, escaped from mainland China to Hong Kong, like the they 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 fled China uh, to Hong Kong and settled down in Hong Kong, and and in the uh, in the nineteen nineties and two thousands, they began to regret their uh, actions of escaping and because uh, their siblings or their relatives in in China who did not escape, they were doing so much better and and they were more prosperous and they had so much more money. So so they were uh, uh, kind of uh, regretting or or being jealous of, of their relatives in mainland China now. And uh, another um, aspect of this kind of narrative is that, like, uh, um, they now can go back to China. So ultimately, it doesn't really matter because it's all one China now. So, so whether you escaped like uh, in the nineteen sixties or nineteen seventies uh, or not, uh, or whether you uh, you know you have been in China all along, it doesn't matter because like people can now come back to this one big family. So it was essential to um, embrace those who had once fled China to highlight their return and reconnection with the mainland. And I think this narrative um, aimed to convey that individuals who had previously left were now acknowledging their roots and recognizing the significance of their homeland and by emphasizing how some of these individuals regretted their journey and 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 downplaying its significance um, in like contemporary um, uh, like Greater China, and um, uh, I think this is 
tie it back to the overarching like uh, great China and 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 like uh, the emergence of the of uh, 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 the the uh, uh, big China Da Zhonghua narrative, which promotes unity and and patriotism among overseas Chinese communities. So I think this shift in narrative um, in the two thousands um, uh, could also impact how some individuals reflected on their past actions and choices. And um, perhaps uh, it may encourage them to align more closely with the official CCP narrative and the reunification of Hong Kong with mainland China. So, um, uh, so, so I think, uh, you know, uh, these, the, the new narrative, uh, has its own propaganda message, like, uh, but it is a different message than the previous, uh, than the previous one. Um, and, um, uh, so and and uh, I think uh, you the, there's a second part of the question that you asked, um, um, which is about uh, why a construction of a diasporic history of the southern periphery um, necessary to help us understand the political currents in Hong Kong today. So um, um, so so the construction of a diasporic history of the southern periphery. I think it's. Um, a um, counter discourse to the narrative that I just mentioned. So, um, um, in my book, I'm not, I'm not, uh, uh, you know, like talking about um, this narrative of homecoming, and uh, uh, instead, I'm talking about these different experiences of people um, being stranded in Hong Kong. Or uh, they have, uh, ha- or how their, um, uh, uh, how their uh, political affiliations and political consciousness have changed um, over time. So, what I want to say is that um, understanding people's beliefs is not a straightforward matter, and um, it is not just about. Um, um, a, a love or hate for one's country, and it's, 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 uh, there's and, and there's no one defining moment that um, change um, how one feels about one's country or or the state. Um, instead, I think people's feelings toward their homeland and the governing authorities can be intricate and layered. And examining how um, various historical events have shaped discourse and how individuals had diverse life reference points can help us comprehend their political positions. So um, after 1949, both the um, CCP and the, and the, and the KMT um, claimed to be the sole legitimate party state of China, However, some political dissidents didn't align with either party, and and they felt um, um, these two parties did not represent their aspiration for China's future. So, 
so to them, like they had to find their own path, and 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 sometimes they were rejected by both states. So I think it is crucial to distinguish between the state and the people when discussing China or any region. And I think throughout much of my book, I um, I try to explore China as a conceptual idea from the perspectives of these migrants, um, rather than simply viewing it as a nation state. So I think this perspective uh, sheds light on the complexity of political beliefs and affiliations, as well as one's sense of belonging um, uh, in the southern periphery today. Right, and then um, totally agree with you, and especially in terms of the different layered uh, dimension of one's political affiliation, and sometimes it could be changing affiliation as well, or this uh, diverse reference point in their decision-making process and also in their journey of border crossing as well. And uh, I also want to thank you for uh, also uh, highlighting the uh, shifts in the border crossing narrative around the 2000s in the uh, before 2000 Hong Kong as a site of corruption. There were corrupt people and but after the takeover uh there's this kind of highlight and emphasis on the uh, greater china this kind of like a uh, reconnection as well so uh, with this now uh, i would like to ask a question that is actually about uh, still about the book, but specifically about writing this book. So we know you already have a very rich uh, set of materials as we discuss with different chapters or so, but uh, any materials that didn't get to be included in the book or is there any uh, unexpected materials that you encountered during the writing of this book? Um, yeah, I think... Um... Maybe like I would, uh, if I were to, um, uh, uh, if I were to write this book again, like maybe I would um, uh, include um, uh, more materials on post uh, 1970 uh, uh, migration or escape, like um, because I think. Uh, the post-1970 um, uh, group of escapees, they, they were quite uh, distinctive and, and uh, they were different from the earlier, um, earlier waves of uh, uh, escapees. And um, um, I think uh, because the post-1970 um, uh, escapees would have um, witnessed the turbulence uh, um, uh, cultural revolution, and um, it would be intriguing to consider how the cultural revolution may have influenced their diasporic sentiments and whether it played a role in shaping their understanding of their relationship with China. So, um, so uh, much of the interviewees. Uh, said in in my interviews like they they because they escaped um in the 1960s so they had a lot of comments about the cultural revolution but they did not actually experience it so 
So, uh, so, so I always find it interesting to compare, um, uh, like, uh, um, people who have departed China at different times in, 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 in history and then, um, and, and how they look back on China and then how they talk about, um, the development of China. Um, and then like, because part, part of it, like they would be describing it, from their own personal experience and, and from within China. And then part of it would be after they departed, um, after they departed and then they are looking back and then it would be mixed with their speculations. And also uh, it would be mixed with uh, media discourse. So I think like including um the post 1970s escapees would be an interesting addition, and and it would like uh, be um, uh, I think quite uh, fascinating to compare their perspectives with the earlier uh, earlier refugees. And uh, additionally, um, I think uh, uh, another aspect that I didn't get to talk about much in the book uh, is about women. And and I, I it is something that I I regret a bit because my first book focuses on lower class women and then this book is mostly about men so although there are few women kind of included in it but uh, um, you know like I think uh, uh, I was limited by uh, the sources I found so um, so I did interview some women. Uh, but I did not really feature them in my uh, chapters. Um, uh, but I want to r- kind of write down why they were not included. Um, I think one reason is that um, uh, some women were, um, uh, they agreed to be interviewed. And then later on, like there about five or six of them, like later on they would call me or email me Um telling me that uh, their husbands did not let them to be interviewed. They, their husbands, uh, or I think one of them said it's her son. So like, I think three or four of them said it's their husband. And then one of them says the son said that it's a bad idea to talk about this. So, so, so eventually I did not get to interview them. And then um, there's some of them I interviewed the, husband and the wife, um, uh, in the same occasion. So, um, uh, when I interviewed them together, um, like, uh, the, the women often remained silent when their husbands were present. And then when their husbands, uh, finished their parts and, 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 and went to go take a nap or something. And then they started becoming very lively and, and talk about their experiences, um, um, but, and their narratives tended to be much more personal and, and they, um, uh, and, 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 uh, and, and, and I realized that, you know, what holds, uh, um, uh, importance in their lives and, and, and how they, um, uh, connect, uh, to the concept of home is quite radically different from how most men talk about it. Like they seldom talk about home in a sense of nation or state. Like they, they talk about home as like um, being with their families and friends, and also their 
you know, their reference point is much more personal and about, you know, about uh, their immediate family surrounding and about survival. So, so I think uh, their uh, narratives could provide valuable insights into the uh, experiences of, of migrants um, and, uh, and also their perspectives of, of, of life. So, so, uh, but because like um, that would um, um, diverge from my project, like my, the intention of this project. So, so, so I, I did not include um, most of them in, in this book, but uh, I think these unexplored areas um, represent uh, untapped potential for further understanding the complexities of migration and diasporic sentiments. So, so, uh, so, so, so I think that they, they are definitely, um, uh, you know, fascinating topics, uh, but uh, um, they did not get included in this book. Thank you for uh, sharing your thoughts, and especially as you mentioned the post-1970s, uh, um, the individuals, uh, border crossing, and also the uh, gender dimension as well in terms of your uh, interview that you observed. And I think this actually shows the uh, uh, potential for this book that, you know, there's a further topics that they can be, uh, other topics that can be further explored, and also maybe... Um, uh, in the future, we will see uh, your work on these uh, topic that you just uh, mentioned. So uh, now we are moving to the uh, last part of our interview. And uh, so now you finished this wonderful book. Congratulations again. And uh, so we are wondering whether uh, you can share with us about the project you are working on or uh, the next plan you have. Yes, thank you. Um Right now, I am um, moving away from uh, the topic of uh, diaspora a little bit, and and uh, I am um, uh, focusing on the topic of disability. So one of the projects that I'm working on um, is uh, about um, the blind workers' uh, labor movements in Hong Kong um, uh, uh, and and their history. So. Um, uh, I, I can talk a little bit about um, this project. So, so the Hong Kong Blind Factory was established in 1963 um, by the Society for the Blind, and it was the first blind factory in Asia to create employment opportunities for individuals with visual impairments. And um, uh, I find the blind factory very interesting because uh, in the early years, um, they employed over 300 um, visually impaired workers and uh, they, uh, they uh, created, uh, I mean, they, they, they made a lot of things like including uh, wooden boxes, uh, soda and beer cases, chalks, brooms, mops and, and document strings. And um, as the factory's scope gradually expanded, it became the premier producer of brooms in Asia and, uh, and, and, and uh, manuf- manufacturing uh, uh, 1.7 million um, brooms annually. So um, 
but uh, what I, I uh, am uh, focusing on is not just what they produce, but uh, uh, but uh, uh, the the labor movements and and uh, the the first. Uh, labor movements in the factory started in 1968 uh, when the workers instigated a sit-in protest to demand equitable pay and recognition for their labor, um, um, same as like uh, able-bodied workers. And uh, this protest marked the onset of a protracted struggle that would shape the identity and class consciousness of these workers. And um, for that particular um, movement, um, the workers achieved a temporary victory by forcing the management to raise their wages. But um, a, a few years later, in 1971, a new challenge arose. And, uh, and that was caused by the Society for the Blind uh, uh, which managed the factory, uh, 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 sought to rebrand the factory as the training center for the blind. And the implications of this name change was that it reduced the workers' employment status to trainees. So, um, so, so uh, once again, uh, the workers went on strike, and this time it was a six-month-long strike. And... Um, because they were uh, uh, against the change of their title from being uh, workers to trainees. So, um, um, and this strike eventually led the society to abandon the renaming proposal. And then um, there were some like tensions between the management and the workers for a few decades. And then uh, in the in the uh, 2010s, like uh, a few years ago, and um, um, the 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 society uh, had another plan, uh, um, which was to um, phase out the regular workers and redevelop the factory into a multi-purpose building catering to people with various forms of disability. So uh, and and. Uh, as a result of this plan, um, they wanted to relocate the blind factory to a remote location, but all these were not, uh, uh, were, were all these were done without consultation with the workers. So, so uh, this has triggered another um, protest among the workers um, um, in uh, twenty nineteen. So, um, and uh, after this round of protests, the the um, the temporary site of the factory was changed to a more convenient location. Um, but uh, the future um, plan of the, of the uh, blind factory is still uncertain and it is still, um, the, the struggle is still ongoing. So um, I, uh, I, 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 I find um, uh, uh, this, uh, 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 this uh, case of um, um, disabled uh, workers um, uh, fighting for their rights uh, very interesting because it raises question about um, uh, uh, about disability and labor and then um, I think uh, um, uh, we have all have assumptions about uh, disabilities and um, and uh, uh, and and we we seldom uh, consider uh, um, 
disabled people as 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 uh, uh, as as uh, workers who um, deserve equal rights. So 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 I think um, um, this project can um, um, can challenge a lot of our assumptions, and also it can um, and and can. Uh, uh, can can uh, can also raise uh, kind of global questions about uh, disability rights and 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 working rights. Well, Angelina, that sounds wonderful, and especially uh, sounds also important, especially about disability rights and also labor rights and the connection and also to some degree con- uh, confrontation between the two as well. So uh, with this, uh, now we are going to conclude our interview here. I want to thank you, Angelina, for being on the show today. I really enjoy it. Yeah, thank you very much. And I also want to thank you, our audience, for us uh, staying with us till the end. I hope everybody is taking good care, staying safe. See you guys next time. Goodbye.